The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open God's Word together, so uh, let me encourage you to stretch out your hand for a copy of the Scriptures. We're opening to Genesis 28 this morning, so if you don't have a Bible, uh, please do reach forward and grab one there as we turn to page 22, Genesis 28. Uh, we are now, I believe, is it our ninth week in this series, The Generations of Grace, The Life of Isaac and Jacob, because we are going to the book of Genesis and really the second half of the book of Genesis as we see God's promises to a particular family, that particular family becomes what we know as the people of God, and the people of God draw their family lineage from these first three original generations, formally anyway, the first three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we call the patriarchs. And the second half of the book of Genesis, really from Genesis chapter 12 on to the end, is all about this family lineage of the patriarchs. Uh, but it's not just a story of these individual people and their family. Uh, it's a story of God's grace and how through God's grace and promise, He calls together this family and gathers a people together to be His own. And the fact that you and I are here today means that we are the continuation of this promise of the generations of God's grace in His family lineage. Now, we've been looking together particularly at the life of Jacob, and we come this morning to Genesis 28, and we're going to be looking at uh, chapter uh, 28, 10, and following through the rest of the chapter, and we come this morning to really what is a very well-known phrase, but an often unknown point. So we come this morning to Genesis 28 and Jacob's ladder, a very well-known term often culturally, but we, wanna, we don't want to know it culturally, we want to know it from God's Word and what the point of all of this is. So if you've got your Bible in uh, Genesis 28, uh, you'll be ready to go. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures as we hear it together. Let's pray. Lord our God, we confess, as we have already heard from the Scriptures this morning, that You are the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and Jacob, and indeed our God as well. You are also the God of Revelation in that You give Yourself to Your people, not just generally in creation with the evidence that You are the Creator, but specifically in the Scriptures as You reveal who You are, what You are like, what You do for Your people, and the plan of redemption that you have written from all eternity in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to know you more deeply from the Scriptures as we study this morning in your Word. And we pray, Lord, that we might see by the eyes of faith this spiritual truth which you've given to us, that we might be refreshed and instructed and encouraged and given hope today through your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Genesis 28, at verse 10, under the heading, Jacob's Dream. This is the Word of God. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I, will, that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, you want to keep your Bible open. We're also going to be turning into the New Testament uh, later on into John 1 and Hebrews 12. So if you'd like to be prepared for that, John 1 and Hebrews 12 is upcoming. But for now, stay in Genesis 28. Now, let me speak very directly to a particular generation of you. Some of you never in your wildest dreams imagined that you would hear a sermon that began by a pastor referencing Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. But here we go. Now, just in case you're not familiar with one of the most popular songs of all time, it was made famous on the release of an untitled album in 1971. Actually, never really did very well on the charts because it wasn't released as a single, but it quickly became a mainstay on the radio, even though it's like eight minutes long and still remains today something of a cultural music icon. Uh, but as many people who have heard it, everyone seems to have a different opinion about what the song is about. Uh, probably even Jimmy Page and all the rest of them have maybe no clue uh, there's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying the stairway to heaven. What does that mean? Robert Plant wrote the song, what seems to be a critique of an overly materialistic society with kind of wit and intentional vagary and lots of metaphor to say that spiritual meaning is found in life rather than hoping for salvation and death. Because the stairway to heaven can be found within the song of the wind. Whatever that means. Uh, what is that all about? The imagery captures people and has captured people for a long time. A stairway to heaven. And that metaphor comes from Genesis 28. Uh, but this picture, this illustration of a ladder, of a stairway... That captures people, and we don't want to understand it according to Led Zeppelin, for goodness sakes. We want to understand it with according to Scripture. What does this mean? What is this ladder or mode of transportation to heaven, and what's that all about anyway? I want to suggest to you uh, that the ladder, or if you want to call it a stairway, is not an end within itself. The point of Genesis 28 is not a ladder or a stairway. So what is the point? 
Well, let's see several things. First of all, just let's pick up the context of who Jacob is and what he's doing and what's going on around him and why he finds himself in this place. This is Jacob, the third generation patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's context is that he is fleeing his father's homeland. He is fleeing the land, childless, without a wife, fleeing from his bloodthirsty older twin brother Esau, who is intent to kill him. And as he is fleeing his father's house, he goes with the blessing of God upon him that his father Isaac gave him earlier in chapter 28. He goes with the promises of God conveyed to him, but he's essentially got nothing on his back, nothing in his pockets, and nothing to show for his name because he's just running for his life, essentially. So he's sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow, okay? So circumstantially, it doesn't paint a picture of lavish comfort or ease, but rather hardship. Sleeping on the ground with a rock for a pillow, which is easy to conclude that things aren't really going my way. When I sleep in the dirt and have a rock for a pillow, that means that things aren't going so well for me. Jacob is on his own. Jacob is isolated. Jacob is surrounded by danger. And as Jacob finds himself with those set of external circumstances, some of them very much from his own doing, his own conniving and his own scheming, the Scriptures record that he, in verse 11, comes to a certain place. Kind of vaguely describes this certain place. The sun goes down and he says, here's as good a place of any to go to sleep, grab a rock and go to sleep. He happens upon is what that verb means. He comes to a certain place. He just happens upon it. Seemingly totally random, right? From one perspective, totally random. Jacob just says, sun's going down, might as well sleep, here I am. And the point is, is that the details are presented in such a way as to appear random and appear normal and appear just really unimpressive. But everything that's happening here is intending to communicate a word from the Lord in a very dramatic picture. Because what seems like a random place and a random rock and a random pile of dirt is all in accord with God's providence because God comes to meet Jacob. God comes to meet Jacob in an impressive divine encounter. And what I want you to see in the text is I want you to see this emphasis of how much of this encounter is based upon God's own divine initiative. How much of the details of this are based on the fact that God is coming to Jacob, not the case that Jacob is coming to God. Because in this very picture, you have a description of how grace functions, how grace operates, how God meets his people, and it's in this way, that God comes by his own initiative and his own lavish provision to give grace to those who are in need of grace, who need resources outside of themselves, and comfort and peace that's going to come from outside of themselves. See this emphasis here that Jacob is not seeking for God, he's just running away, but Jacob is found by God in the midst of Jacob's fleeing. On his way to find a wife, rather, God finds Jacob. It's very much like, if you want a New Testament parallel, in the book of Acts chapter 9, Saul, who's on his way to persecute the church, on his way to Damascus, is not looking for the living Christ. But that's exactly who he encounters. Jesus seeks us out and finds us when we're not looking for him. When we are perhaps intending to run far away from him. God seeks out his own people. 
Jacob is not asking for God's blessing, but he receives it. And to emphasize very much the, the point here of the passivity of Jacob, if you're not picking up on all the details of that, notice the extra exclamation mark that this is happening while Jacob is asleep. That is to say, a non-conscious actor in the entire event. It's striking that God comes to Jacob while he's asleep. Again, stressing the passivity of Jacob in this whole experience. Jacob is asleep, but God is pursuing him. Jacob is going to be able to look back on this episode for the rest of his life and know that the Lord sought him out. Wayward as he was, schemer though he was, sinner though he was, the Lord is going to pursue Jacob with covenant mercy. That's what this is about. So he has a dream. Now, addressing this very quickly on the front end, it is the case oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, that God reveals Himself to His people by way of a dream, and that's because the revelation of the Scriptures wasn't provided to them. The Scriptures are being written. Uh, don't, don't suspect that God is going to speak to you audibly in dreams. Uh, God speaks to you here, here. And the record of God's speech to His people throughout history is recorded here, but in this particular episode, God is speaking to Jacob by way of this dream. Now, that we find in verses 13 and following. Behold, verse 13 says, we find this detail. What are the details there? Pick up actually verse 12. He dreamed a dream, and behold, there was a ladder. Or, yes, it can be translated uh, a stairway or also a flight of steps. You might notice in the ESV text, there's a footnote there, footnote 6, ladder. It could also mean a flight of steps. There's some debate about the linguistics of this all. If you're interested in this, you might be interested to know that the reason why sometimes translators don't prefer the term ladder is because ladders don't often have safe two-way traffic. And that's exactly what this is describing, a two-way traffic mode. And usually, you're either going up or down, but you can't go two people up and down at the same time. So oftentimes, the term stairway is preferred to ladder. Nevertheless, the Hebrew term does mean ladder. Some actually prefer, though, a ramp or stair-like pavement. Call it what you want. The point is not the mechanism of travel. Ramp, stairway, ladder, incline, whatever you want to call it. The point isn't even actually the angelic beings that are on the stairway or ladder. Even though we find this detail there in verse 12. Again, he dreamed a dream, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Uh, notice there is this amplification. He dreams, and behold, there is this mode of travel. And behold, as he looks at the mode of travel, he sees angels, these divine messengers, helpers who are going up and down. Now, very quickly, as a distinct detail here, uh, this is important because it is set in opposition to another vertical structure from the pages of the Old Testament called the Tower of Babel, where mankind in pride and arrogance said, we want to reach our way up to God and so we will ascend. And in contrast to man who tries to ascend in pride is God himself who is now descending in grace. Rather than sinful pride, this ladder does reach to heaven, but the emphasis is that it is coming down from heaven out of grace by God's doing, not that it goes up from the earth according to man's doing. And there are angelic messengers traveling back and forth on this ladder, but the point is not that either. Again, the amplification, behold, a ladder, and behold, angels, verse 12, but the biggest behold there is in verse 13, behold, what? The Lord. Who? The Lord, that is the point 
of this dream. The purpose of this revelation isn't a ladder. It's not angels. It's the Lord. Verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it. And you've got another footnote there. It could also be translated as beside him, which is not necessarily to mean that the Lord is only located at the top of this ladder, but rather that it emphasizes that the purpose of this whole dream is to reveal the Lord who is coming to Jacob. So whether you want to think that he is above or behind, beside, it really doesn't matter. The purpose is that the Lord is near Jacob. The Lord is with Jacob. That's why Jacob says in verse 16, the Lord is in this place because he's been with me. The Lord is revealing himself to runaway Jacob. The Lord is with me where I am. And the point of this revelation in verses 13 and following, 13, 14, and 15, is that God is coming to Jacob to give to him the assurance of covenant mercy. Now, if you remember early in Genesis 28, when Jacob left his father's household, Isaac, his father, blessed his son and essentially said, My son, the God of the covenant, go with you. The God of Abraham, my God, the God of Isaac, this God goes with you to bless you. And Jacob heard that from his father. The point now of this episode is that Jacob is now going to hear it from God himself. As God himself speaks to Jacob these words, saying in verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And he launches in to remind Jacob of the details of what we call throughout the book of Genesis, this Abrahamic covenant, these details of these promises that God has given to these particular people. But first, the emphasis, first of all, I am the God of Abraham, Jacob, your grandfather's God. Jacob, I am the God of Isaac, your father's God. I am not some foreign deity or pagan idol. I am the only God that there is, the Lord of heaven and earth. Your father's God, your grandfather's God, and this is the God who speaks to Jacob, saying in verse 15 these details of that covenant I will bless you. I will bless you and I will keep you. I will give you land, seed, and blessing. Notice those details in verse 13 the land on which you lie, I will give you. Verse 14 offspring, your offspring shall be the dust of the earth. And, verse 15, behold, uh, you will be blessed. I will be with you and I will bless you. Land, seed, and blessing. The Abrahamic covenant as it is throughout all the Scripture. But think about this for a second. God is promising land, seed, and blessing. He's promising land to Jacob who's sleeping in the dirt and says, all of this land is going to be yours, Jacob, as I sleep in the dirt. Jacob who has no children, and no prospective children at this moment, he says, I'm going to give you offspring. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Jacob, you who have only schemed throughout your life, I'm going to bless you. Jacob who has only dirt to sleep on is going to have the land. Jacob with no children is going to be blessed with posterity and offspring. Jacob who has only schemed is going to be blessing. And the point in all of this is God is saying to Jacob, these covenant promises belong to you. You inherit these covenant promises. You live in this covenant family and are a recipient of mercy and grace. I am your God, Jacob. 
Read it back one more time and notice how the emphasis comes about. There in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The land on which you lie, I will give you. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you all your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Do you see the details here? Notice the unconditionality of this covenant promise. God is not coming to Jacob saying, Jacob, if you will, then I will. He's not saying, if you meet me, then I'll meet you the other way. No, no, no. God is saying, Jacob, I will do this. On the unconditionality of my sovereign word, I will fulfill my promise to you because, Jacob, you are the recipient of covenant mercy and grace. And think about this for a second. In the storyline of the book of Genesis, Jacob's probably the last person that, if we want to even say this, deserves this. But you know that's not how grace works, right? Grace is not deserved. Grace is not earned. Grace is not given according to merit. Because if it would, then grace wouldn't be grace. Jacob, the scandalous cheat, is the recipient of unconditional mercy by God's sovereign purposes. And Jacob understood what the Lord was doing through this dream. Nothing to do with weird, foolish symbolism from Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. Nothing to do with weird, strange mysticism of people thinking that it's possible for us to climb a ladder to go from this side of heaven to the next and come back. And people think that, but they make it up. People also think that this is supposed to represent some kind of means by which when I die, I have to climb Jacob's ladder, and by climbing Jacob's ladder, I will earn my pathway into heaven as some form of strange subset to purgatory. No! None of that. That's not what this is about. This is intended to communicate to Jacob the assurance of God's presence and protection, that wherever Jacob goes, God goes with him. This visual depiction of angelic messengers ascending and descending is supposed to represent the uninterrupted fellowship between God in heaven and His people on earth as He supplies the needs of His people to carry them forth to their intended end and undergirding the significance of God's covenant promises that I am with you. You can't flee my presence. Wherever you go, there I am. However far you stray, I'll be there too. That's what God is saying to Jacob. Jacob's life will never be able to outpace God's presence because God is his keeper. This is incredibly significant because, again, Jacob has been a cheat and a liar, but God is not through with Jacob. Jacob is on a 1,000-mile trip to northern Mesopotamia, and God will be with him every step of the way. Jacob's life is going to be on the receiving end of other people manipulating and scheming against him. And God is saying, Jacob, as you are sinned against, so I will protect you. And this dream serves to emphasize something that you and I already know and we sing about it regularly. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and Grace will lead me home. That's what God is saying to Jacob. Jacob, you can't 
outrun grace. You can't outpace grace. You can't flee away from my presence. God directs and leads and guides. God finds his people sometimes and even oftentimes in solitary places when they think that they are abandoned by the Lord and he finds us in those lonely places to confirm his grace to us and say to us like he's saying to Jacob, I'm still with you. It might feel like I'm not, but the people of God are not to live in accord and be governed by their external circumstances. They're called to live by faith. So that even when you're laying in the dirt with nothing but a rock for your pillow, if God is your God, and you have all you need, that's what this means. So notice the response. It might seem strange. Jacob wakes up. (laughs) It was one wild dream. Early in the morning, verse 18, he wakes up and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. In a sense, he was afraid. That's what the text says. And he says, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I appreciate the fact that Jacob who thinks he's the smartest guy ever created, is willing to confess his own ignorance. He says, this is true and I didn't know it. I didn't realize it. It wasn't clear to me before. And oftentimes in our fear and in our sorrows, we forget that God is near to us. And God is near to Jacob. And Jacob says, I forgot it. And out of this mixture of fear and reverence, Jacob says, how awesome is this place. Notice the intersection again. He is filled with awe and fear, and it promotes reverence. And he undertakes this strange ritual. He takes the stone that his head had been laying on as a pillow, he stands it up as a pillar, and he pours oil over it to consecrate it and make it a holy place. And he gives it the name Beth-El, which means house of God. It is called the house of God. Now this is also interesting that uh, among the various places in the Old Testament, the place called Bethel will be one of the places that the evil king Jeroboam will set up an altar to a false god and worship there, where many generations before Jacob met with God in this dream, uh, and which is a word about how blatantly offensive idolatry really is. But Jacob says, this place, this stone that I've laid upon, this dirt that I stand upon is holy. It's holy ground. Like Moses in the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses out of the bush, take off your sandals because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And just like that, this place is holy. Not because Jacob is there. Not because Jacob is some kind of superhero. But rather because God is there. God's presence is what makes this place holy. He says this is the house of the Lord. And you should pause and ask yourself the question, but I thought God was everywhere. How can particular places be called the house of the Lord and holy places if if God is everywhere? David prays in Psalm 139, Behold, if I should ascend or descend, you are there, and you know my inward thoughts, and when I rise up and when I sit down, everywhere I go, Lord, you're already there. God is omnipresent. Yes, that's true. But there is a point of intersection. When the presence of God meets the promises of God, And God makes Himself known at that place. That place is a holy place. That's what Jacob is understanding here. This strange dream, 
something of a legend in people's eyes, known as Jacob's Ladder, without a clue of what it's really about, is all about where God comes to make His own promises and presence known to His people and confirm His covenant to them. Now this is so significant that the Lord Jesus Himself actually makes a callback reference to this. If you go forward into the New Testament in John chapter 1, at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus makes reference to this episode, which many people just think is strange, but he, he communicates something of the reality of what it represents. In John chapter 1, at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus is calling his disciples Philip and Nathaniel, and as he speaks to them and they respond, Jesus says in John verse, chapter 1 verse 50, Jesus answered him saying, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Verse 51 says, And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on me, the Son of Man. Jesus interprets this text to understand that in response to Jacob's faith and responding to or Nathan's faith responding to the Lord's call that the point of this divine revelation is that Jesus Christ himself is the Lord of covenant mercy the one who rules all commerce from heaven import and export as the ladder goes up and the ladder comes down so the Lord Jesus is the Lord of all of that he sends out messengers to help his people and one day he gives access to his people by way of his own blood and righteousness the goings from and comings to heaven are Jesus Christ to rule that's what he says this is about me and so the further question becomes then, if this episode is all about Jesus Christ and the salvation that He ultimately offers as it's promised by way of the patriarchs and becomes fulfilled many, 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 many generations later, then where then today is Bethel? Is it just some rock standing vertically somewhere around Mesopotamia? Where has God made Himself known? We touched on this several weeks ago, but the point remains still as Genesis 28 is saying to us, where has God's presence met His promises in such a way that the people of God can say, God is here? Well, the reason why people call Jerusalem the Holy Land is because that's where Jesus walked. And they regard it to be sacred space. But more than that, the house called Bethel, the house of God, what does it mean to go to Bethel today? Well, come forward into the book of Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 speaks of this various thing. Where, where, where do we want to go if we're going to come into God's presence? Where can we go to find Bethel, the house of God, where God's presence meets His promises and God's people can be blessed? The book of Hebrews says in chapter 12 at verse 18, speaking first of all about Sinai in the Old Covenant, Hebrews 12 at verse 18 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
If you wanted to go to the house of the Lord, you used to have to go to Sinai. You used to have to go according to the law, according to the old covenant, according to Moses. But verse 22 says, but you, you Christian believer, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where is Bethel? Where is the house of the Lord? Where does God's presence meet His promises? The answer is at Zion, where God dwells with His people. And you say, but where's Zion? Look around you. John Newton Gives us those words, that beautiful hymn, Savior, since of Zion City, I through grace a member am. You, if you are a Christian believer, you are a citizen of Zion. You are a citizen of the king's city where God dwells and meets with his people. We are the citizens of Zion. We meet together in Bethel, the house of the Lord, because where the presence of God intersects the promises of God, there God dwells. And when his people come, they come not under the terror of Sinai and of the law and under the old covenant, but under the banner of the gospel. They come to Mount Zion. They come to Jesus, Hebrews 12.24 says. This is the house of the Lord. This is where God dwells. This is where God's presence intersects His promises so that His people know that wherever I go, God is with me. Many of you know the name of R.C. Sproul. His ministry is Ligonier Ministries who does the Table Talk magazines and many different uh, media and resources that we use. Uh, But at uh, the church where R.C. Sproul used to be the pastor, it's this uh, beautiful, it's a Protestant church, of course, but it's designed in a very ancient Gothic cathedral style. And there's a nave in in the outer courts of the church, which has a very low ceiling. You walk through the nave of the outer doors, which has a low ceiling and dimly lit, because you are intended to experience the physical process of walking through the darkness of the nave, into the sanctuary doors, and the ceilings go way up. You go from this low, dark nave into the sanctuary where your eye is drawn up and out and into the glory of the sanctuary, which is intended to communicate that when you come to church, like something is really happening. And in that church, it says this, there's a sign on the door. When we enter this building, we are moving across a threshold, making a transition from the common to the uncommon, from the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the secular to the sacred, from the profane to the holy. So I'll close by saying this, and some of you were waiting for closing, right? Let me say very clearly, there is no magic in this building. There is no magic in this building But when the place is consecrated, as Jacob consecrates this place, when the place is set apart, then that place is indeed holy ground where God's presence intersects His promises and the people of God experience the confirmation that this God is our God. Think about it. You witnessed something of it this morning as the officers stand to make a vow in the presence of God in this congregation. But think about, think about all the baptisms that have happened up here. Think about all the celebrations of the Lord's Supper that have happened in these walls. 
Think about the marriages. Think about these various experiences of coming and serving together. Think about all of the saints who made their last entrance into this building, not because they walked, but because their body was rolled in a casket there to be consecrated to the Lord and committed in Christian burial to say, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, the Lord lives and His kingdom reigns. In this place, this is the house of God. This is holy ground. Because here God makes Himself known. His presence intersects His promises. And what this does is assure His people as it assured Jacob, saying this very clearly to you, God is with you. He's with you wherever you go. He's with you in everything that you do, even if you would rather be unconscious of that because you're running. He's with you still and says, don't flee from me. Your sin cannot outrun God's grace. And He says this, to you as he says to Jacob, Jacob, when it's all done, I'm going to lead you home. No matter where you go, no matter what happens, I will lead you home. He says this to Jacob, and by Jesus Christ in the Gospel, Christian believer, he says the same to you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and its truth, and we pray that even as you revealed this to Jacob, and by way of the Scriptures to us now, we pray that we would be a people conscious of Your very presence. You who reign above, Lord, reign in our hearts and lead us in ways of obedience that we might be a people who are blessed because You are our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.